Are you a loving person? There's a straightforward question for you. Are you a loving person? It's a crucial question as well, because Christians are loving people. I can say without ifs or buts or small prints or caveats, real Christians are loving people. The Bible makes that utterly clear. So are you a loving person? Well, you might say, how do I know? How do I tell? What's a loving person like? Well, that's the subject of 1 John 3, verses 16 to 20. So let's turn now to 1 John 3, verses 16 to 20. That question, what's a loving person like? How do I tell? Is answered by 1 John 3, verses 16 to 20. Now, these few verses here in 1 John, like 1 John as a whole, these verses have a double purpose. It's a purpose we're told in chapter five, verse 13. Those who've been coming to this series will, I hope, by now know the purpose of the letter is there in chapter five, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's to help us know whether or not we have eternal life. But the letter's also written so that chapter two, verse one. Chapter two, verse one, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. The letter is written also to get us living as people who have eternal life should live. And you can see both of those in verses 16 to 20 of chapter three. It's about knowing we belong to God by examining whether we're loving or not. So, for example, verse 19 This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. But it's also about stirring us up to better love. So, for example, verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or or tongue, but with actions and in truth. It's got this double purpose. So, you know, are you a loving person? Because this is one of the marks of being a real Christian, of having eternal life and also to stir you up because all of us could do with more love. More love coming out from us. So let's get into 1 John 3 verses 16 to 20 so you can answer this crucial question. Are you a loving person? First of all, what love is? First of all, we need to know what love is. Now, last time I was in London, I saw some people riding Boris bikes and on the back of the bike was a rainbow and hashtag love is love. Does that help us? You want to know what love is? Well, as society says, it's simple. Love is love. Well, if my children ask me what is an electromagnetic wave and I say to them, it's simple. An electromagnetic wave is an electromagnetic wave. Has that helped them? It's A society is clueless about love, but the Bible is clear about love. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. You want to know what love is? Look at Jesus. You want to see love in action? Look at the cross. So let's do that briefly now. Let's just take a few of these words in verse 16. Jesus Christ laid down his life. Let's just take those words laid down his life to start with. Now, children, when do you lie down? At the end of the day to go to bed, don't you? And I hope it's really nice and peaceful. And I hope you've got a comfortable bed to lie in. 
Well, is that what this laid down his life was like for Jesus? It says he laid down his life. And when we lie down, that's nice and peaceful and comfortable and something to look forward to. Is that what it means? He laid down his life. Oh, there was nothing peaceful or comfortable about that. Yes, he was laid down. People laid him down on a cross so they could drive nails through him. And then he was jolted upright and left hanging there to heave for breath and grimace in pain. And he certainly wasn't left in peace, even while dying, no, as people around him mocked and jeered and slandered him. He laid down his life. It's nothing like any lying down we've ever done. So what does it mean he laid down his life? Well, it means this. When they laid him down on that cross and they tied him to that cross, it wasn't because he was trying to get away. They didn't have to hold him down and tie him down because he was trying to get out of it. He had voluntarily gone to the cross. He laid that he laid down his life. He chose to do this. Uh, It may be a slightly better translation would be he laid aside his life. It's the same phrase, actually, as in if you know John's gospel, chapter 13. And at the beginning of John 13, we read Jesus laid aside his coat and his outer clothes. He chose to take them off to put them aside so he could wash his disciples feet. And here he laid aside not his coat, not some spare change, not something he could do without, but his very life itself. He laid it aside so he could wash our sins away. Laid down his life. Let's move on to the next two words. And they're only two words, but they're really significant. What are the next two words? For us. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. There's a wealth in these words. Uh, I'll try to illustrate it this way. Does the name Charles Benyon mean anything to you? I bet there are some people here who've seen the word, the name Charles Benyon, seen it on a plaque in Bradgate Park. Is this helping anyone on a plaque in Bradgate Park? Because Charles Benyon, back a long time ago, I think it was the 1920s, he bought Bradgate Park. He purchased it and he purchased it to give it to Leicestershire for it to be open to the public for any any member of the public to enjoy ever after him. Don't you think that's amazing? Imagine if you could buy Bradgate Park. I don't know how much that would cost. And you could build a housing estate on it and make a lot of money. Or you could put a charge for getting in and have a good income source. But imagine he bought Bradgate Park and just gave it to the public for anyone. He didn't know who. Could be a right useless scoundrel. Well, I suspect there are some useless scoundrels going to Bradgate Park. Anyone to enjoy it. That's amazing generosity. But what Jesus did wasn't just more costly, wasn't just more generous, wasn't just more necessary than what Charles Bennion did. It was also more personal. When you are enjoying climbing on the rocks or whatever you do in Bradgate Park, is it because Charles Bennion knew you and he wanted you personally to enjoy it? It wasn't, was it? It's because he wanted people generally, but he didn't know who they were to enjoy it. But what does our verse say? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Or to go to John's gospel again, John chapter 10, Jesus said, I know my sheep. I know them 
and I lay down my life for my sheep, for them. So if you belong to Jesus Christ, that means he knew you and he loved you and he went to the cross for you. So that you can say in the words of Galatians 2, the son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. He didn't just do it in the hope, well, there'll be someone somewhere out there will benefit. I'm sure there will be people in the future trusting me. I'm sure there'll be people who benefit. No, he knew you and he knew who he was going to that cross for. And he still did it for you. These little words for us are also a technical term in the New Testament. They're a technical term meaning on behalf of. They're consistently across the New Testament when they refer to the death of Jesus used to mean in the place of. In other words, this Jesus Christ laid down his life for us is all about Jesus being our substitute. It means he died in our place to take our punishment so we wouldn't take the punishment. Now, that tells us some more about what love is, because it tells us it wasn't just a feeling Jesus had towards you. It was that. I hope you've seen that already. It tells you it wasn't just something amazingly costly he did for you. It tells you it actually was effective and it did something you needed. Something else important about love. It it does something that actually helps, that isn't just a good intention. Uh, Someone once, um, an older lady, not in Hollywell or in Loughborough, thought she would help me by ironing my clothes for me. Because I was a single man back then, and obviously single men need their clothes ironed for them. Maybe, I don't know. But anyway, she did. It was a nice thought. She thought she was helping me out. And she ironed a crease down the front of all my trousers, including my jeans. And if you know what that's like, it causes a white line down the front that I failed to ever get out after. It was all very well intentioned, but it was really quite a pain. But the love of Jesus is not like that. He laid down his life for us. It means in the place of his sheep, taking their punishment so they wouldn't be punished. He he did something we need and he did it well. Well, that was just scratching the surface of this wonderful phrase in verse 16. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. But it's not here as a drug to make us feel better. I hope it does make us feel better. And and, and that is a good thing for it to make us feel better. But it's not here as a drug just for that purpose. It's here. Well, why is it here? Have a look at the verse. Why is it here? It's here. Verse 16 says, so we know what love is. It's here so you can answer the question, are you a loving person? And it sets the standard for what that love should be like. So let's move on. We've had first what love is. Now we have, secondly, you ought to be loving like this. You ought to be loving like this. Verse 16, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If that's what Jesus is like, if that's what love is like, if we belong to Jesus, if we are his disciples following him, if Christians are loving people, then we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now, what do you think of the word ought? 
When you heard we ought, you ought to be like this. What do you think of the word ought? I think we tend not to like the word ought, do we? Yeah, we don't like being told we ought to do things. It, it speaks of duty. And for some reason in our society, duty has become a dirty word. And I think maybe particularly amongst evangelical Christians, we think that's bad if you do something out of duty. No, you ought to, you oughtn't to just be doing it out of duty. Well, I don't, I'm not so sure that duty is a bad word. I'm not so sure that duty is uh, a bad thing necessarily. Uh, here's an illustration. On the 21st of October, 1805, one of the most exciting and dramatic events in English history happened. Do you know your English history? 1805, it was the Battle of Trafalgar. Nelson led his fleet, the British fleet, head on into the middle of the far larger French and Spanish fleets. And amazingly won. It, that wasn't the way to attack. You don't lead straight into the middle of another fleet because all their guns are facing you and your guns aren't facing them. But amazingly won. And as he led his fleet into battle, do you know what the flags from his ship said? England expects that every man will do his duty. Politically incorrect, isn't it? But so what? England expects that every man will do his duty. And they did. And what a good thing that they did. And in the battle that this world is, everyone following our captain Jesus in his army is expected to do their duty and lay down their life for their brother or sister. Verse 16 is clear. The love of Jesus isn't just there so we feel better. It's because we ought to follow his example. But thirdly, here's the third thing, but it's it's much better than mere duty. I've tried to say duty is not a dirty word, but duty is not enough on its own. It's much better than mere duty. Let's read verse 17. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Now, how is this getting us beyond duty? Why am I saying there's something better than duty here? It's this word pity. This word pity in the verse is a very significant, interesting word. I don't like preachers quoting Greek, but it does help you to know that the Greek word here came from the word for intestines, came from the word for bowels. Now, isn't that odd? <laughs> intestines and bowels. That sounds really odd, odd to us, but it's not that odd, actually. What do people put on Valentine's cards? Hearts. These are that odd. A muscle that pumps blood. <laughs> What's that got to do with things? Well, we talk about our hearts, don't we, when we mean our emotions and we mean being moved when our emotions come into play. But we know it's not really the muscle that pumps the blood round you. And the people in the Bible times, they tended not to talk about the heart when they meant the emotions. They talked about the bowels. They talked about the intestines. And actually, if you think about it, it's probably more sensible. If you get really afraid or really excited or really moved about something, don't you feel it down here more than up here? 
Yeah, I, I think that that is that's more realistic, isn't it? If something really gets to you, you feel it down there more than up there. And that's what this is saying. This verse is saying when a fellow Christian is in need, do you feel it? Does it get to you down here? Do you have love that isn't merely a duty? It's also felt deep within you. See, so I've said duty is not a dirty word, but we do need something better. We do need to go beyond it. And and this is really significant that verse 17 tells us we ought to love. Well, verse 16 has told us we ought to love. And then verse 17 has told us this love should be heartfelt or bowels felt, uh, whichever one you want to use. It should be deep inside you. Now, that's really significant. Uh, Put it this way. Parents know, don't you, that if if your child hurts another child and you say to your child, now, say sorry to them, you can make them say sorry, can't you? Well, I hope you can. You ought to be able to make them say sorry. But can you make them feel sorry? That's a whole different ball game, isn't it? You can make them say sorry, but you can't make them feel sorry. You can tell them they ought to feel sorry. You can try to persuade them why they ought to feel sorry, but you can't make them feel sorry. And yet the Bible tells us we ought to have something that is comes from deep within. And, and that tells us this word pity here is telling us something about the nature of salvation. Something about the nature of salvation. It's a matter of the heart, or should I say it's a matter of the bowels? Salvation is a matter of the bowels. Uh, you probably didn't expect to hear that. I mean, well, let's put it this way. The human dependent approach to evangelism is persuade someone to make a decision for Jesus because it's a great free gift. Then once you've persuaded them that, now I must persuade them to follow the small print and try to live a Christian way. That's the human dependent approach. I persuade them of this free gift. Then I've got to persuade them now change your life. The God-dependent approach to evangelism is God wins someone by his love and changes their heart to trust the Lord Jesus. It won't happen without a heart change. Not real trust, not real repentant faith. And God does that as they hear his good news. He wins them and he changes their heart. So they turn to the Lord Jesus and now their life flows out of this new heart. Now, well, now, to use the words of 1 John 4, verse 19, now they love because he's first loved them. Or as our our verse 17 says, now the love of God has got into them. That would be worthy of another sermon, actually, that phrase about having the love of God in us. It's got into them by the Holy Spirit's heart changing work. So the Bible can expect love that is from deep within us because conversion isn't just being persuaded to change your mind. It's the work of the Holy Spirit changing the heart. And now the new life flows out of that heart. Uh, John's letter calls this being born of God. And he expects that being born of God to show, including in love that comes right from down in your bowels. So we've seen what love is, I hope. Secondly, you ought to love like this. Thirdly, it's better than mere duty. And then fourthly, and it's better than just a general intention. 
It's better than just a general intention. Verse 17 and 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Now, um, in an election campaign, you know, don't you? An election campaign in Britain, no politician who wants to survive it is going to say, I'm against the family and I'm against the NHS. <laughs> it's just electoral suicide, isn't it? They're not going to say I'm against the family and I'm against the NHS. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll specify what they mean by the family or they'll do anything for the family in the NHS, anything practical. I'm not dismissing, by the way, all politicians. We shouldn't be cynical about politicians. But I'm just saying, you know, don't you, that saying you're for something is different from doing anything concrete about it. And it's also true that no Christian will say, I'm not into loving my brothers and sisters. I'm into truth, but I'm not into love. No, you're not going to say that, are you? But verse 17 to 18, don't let us just express sentiments. They don't let us stop at just expressing the general sentiment. No. First of all, verse 17 says, do you have material possessions? Well, we've all got some because I'm thankful to see you're wearing them. Some of them. We've all got some. Do you have material possessions? It says, right. Let's see what you do with them. Isn't that what verse 17 is saying? Do you have material possessions? Right. Let's see what you do with them. In other words, If you have love, let's see how it affects your wallet and your bank account. That's what it's saying. Has heart change reached your wallet or your purse or your bank account? Now, this is very necessary because I have a problem with verse 16 and I'm sure I'm not the only one. And my problem is this. I think of some distant past situation where there were persecuted Christians in prison and in prison, one Christian stood up to a cruel guard on behalf of another Christian. Uh, and, And that Christian laid down his life for his fellow persecuted Christian. And I daydream about that and think, yes, if I was there, that's what I'd do. Yes, if I was in North Korea or if I was in the Roman Empire or if I was in Nazi Germany, I love to daydream about the heroic things I would do. Am I the only one? Sorry, it's a waste of time, isn't it? But it's so easy to do in some situation, thankfully remote from us. So verse 17 says, do you have material possessions? Well, let's think about whether you will lay down your life in some smaller way. Will you lay down that ambition to buy that? You can fill in the blank with what you'd like to buy. We've all got things we'd like to buy, haven't we? Will you lay down that ambition to buy that so you can give to a fellow Christian who's less well off than you? Will you lay down that expectation about what you can afford and what your lifestyle will be like? So you can give to someone who's less well off than you. To put it negatively, and verse 17 does put it negatively. If you see someone in need and you don't give because you say, but I must have this money so I can buy such and such. You're not laying down your life, are you? Because you're saying I must put what I want 
well, maybe consider I need before that person and that person's needs. Or to broaden out verse 17, yes, it is about money, but it's a principle that goes beyond money, surely, isn't it? Will, lay, will you lay down some of your time, time you wanted to spend on something you wanted to do, something you were looking forward to, so you can give time to someone in need of company or help? Here's another way that verse 17 doesn't let us just express sentiment and leave it at that. (laughs) Sounds like we're going to get blown away, doesn't it? But let's look at verse 17 and 16. Spot the difference. Here's a spot the difference question. Verse 16. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him. Now, did you spot the difference? Verse 16, brothers, plural. Verse 17, brother, singular. Why? Because it's easy to claim to have love for fellow Christians in general. It's easy to claim to have love for Christians out there. Or maybe in here in general. But what about that brother or that sister in particular? That's what verse 17 is doing. It's saying, if a brother or sister is in need, will you deny yourself to help regardless of who? Regardless of how irritating, however much you might clash with them, however much you might disagree with various things about them, whatever it is. That's not the question. The question is, is this a brother or sister in need? And will you give, even self-denyingly give? Here's a comment on verse 17 and 18 that goes beyond what they say, but, but it does flow from the love that these verses are about. If you see people who are far from God and heading towards hell, If you see the way that children in our society are taught that right is wrong and wrong is right and are taught in school and over the media and through their peer groups, a system of sexual ethics and an idea of who they are that is totally destructive. If you see and it doesn't move you down here and get you pleading with God. How can the love of God be in you? Surely. Uh, The love of God, when we see the need in our society, should be pouring out of our mouths in our prayer meetings. Does the need get to us? Do we feel it down here? Now, I could press that, that. I'm sure you recognize there are loads. There's almost limitless examples of verse 17 and 18. And we could really press this and really be specific and really push you to give more. But these verses aren't about pressing people to give more. Oh, yes, it is a conclusion of them. It should be the result of them. But these verses aren't about pressurizing you into giving. These verses are about helping you to examine yourself and answer the question, am I a loving person? And to answer it honestly, practically and biblically with the Bible standards. They're about helping you to see, do you have the evidence that the love of God has got into your heart? So let's finish on that one. Evidence, 
the evidence we need. This is what verses 19 and 20 are about. We'll, we'll be brief here to finish. Verse 19 and 20. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts, con- whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. I really find these verses encouraging because verse 19 recognizes we often need to set our hearts at rest. I do. Do you? Because we often get troubled. I get troubled like this. I don't know if you find it shocking that the minister of the church gets troubled like this. I think, am I really a child of God? I think I fail in so many ways. I hear other people talking about their Christian experience. I think, am I a real Christian? It sounds just like they can talk about things that sometimes I just think, have I got that? I get troubled. I need to set my heart at rest. And verse 19 implies that that is a pretty common experience for God's children. And verse 20 recognizes that our hearts often condemn us. And I'm sure I'm not the only one here who thinks sinned again, done it again. You're more like a slave to sin than someone saved from sin. Do you get that? I'm sure you do. And verse 19 to 20 say, and this might not be what you're expecting. They say, here's one of the ways to set your heart at rest. It's not the only way, but it's it is a way you need. You do need this. Seeing the evidence you have the love of God in you. Yes, John has also talked about right belief in Jesus, and he's also talked about obeying God's law. But he says you should be able to set your heart at rest by seeing the evidence the love of God has got into you and it's made you a loving person. John's given us those three tests I've just mentioned. Belief in Jesus, obedience to God's law, love for the brothers And and do notice they are tests. They are evidence of salvation. They are not the cause of salvation. Imagine someone's been smashed up in a road crash and is rushed into hospital unconscious and they rig up a heart monitor to that person. And oh, good, there's a zigzag line and a steady beep. That's evidence he's alive, but it's not the cause of him being alive, is it? And what we've just heard, seeing this love in you is evidence of spiritual life. It's not the cause of spiritual life. The cause is Jesus' love for us. It's Jesus' work for us and us grabbing hold of that and relying on that. But we should see the evidence in our life that that's real faith by seeing it's made us into loving people. Now, I do think there's a danger when we hear about tests And we hear about, are you a loving person? We tend to think the Christian thing to do, the humble thing to do is to say, oh, no, I'm a complete failure. Oh, no, 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 I'm not a loving person. I'm a terrible, miserable failure. I must feel bad about myself. This this sermon must be aiming to get me to feel bad about myself. But no, that's, that's not the aim. John is saying, I'm giving you this for your encouragement. Remember in chapter five, verse 13, he says, I'm writing these things so you may know you have eternal life. I'm writing these things, expecting you to be able to say, yes, I can see. To my shock, God's changed me and made me a loving person. It's feeble. It's poor. It's tainted with sin. But I can see some evidence of it. It isn't just presumed. The Christian thing to do is to say, I must have failed the test. Now let's beat each other up and all feel bad. 
I, I've been involved in two charities for getting um, money to needy people in Zambia. And one is a non-Christian charity run by very well-connected people with very fancy methods for raising finance. And the other is a Christian charity run by five people that simply has meetings in churches, and not many of them, and says to the Christians, here's the situation, please will you give? It's really pathetic, tiddly little charity. Which one raises more money for people in need? Well, you can guess because I'm using it as an illustration, can't you? But when I sort of, when I saw the accounts of the non-Christian charity, I was shocked how much tinier the money raised was than for this tiddly little Christian charity that didn't do much. It just asked Christians and they gave. I, I have found from experience that Christians are very ready to give generously. So I haven't come this evening to throw around accusations and let's beat each other up and feel bad about ourselves. No, I've come rather to apply to us the example of Christ and the encouragement of one John three. And yes, it's challenge. And it's searching questions to help you answer this question. Are you a loving person?